So for those who don't know, I am Ross Owens. I'm an executive pastor here at Allegheny Center Alliance Church, and I am honored to continue our sermon series titled Mosaic. Now with the, with the title of Mosaic, our tagline is, we who are many are one. And during our, C- our series, we're focusing on the 12th chapter of Romans as it highlights what the body of Christ should look like. And during this series, we are going to talk about how we are part of a diverse community, but because of the Holy Spirit, we are one. Now, last week, Pastor Allen covered verses three through eight, verses a couple weeks ago, I'm sorry, Pastor Allen covered verses one and two, and he emphasized the community of faith as a cross, distinctive, and spirit people. Now, last week, he covered verses 3 through 8 and described how we as a church or as a body of believers, how we should think. Now, during both of those installments, he stressed that both becoming a community of faith as transformed people and by changing our idea about how we think about church can only come as a result of a changed mind as highlighted in Romans chapter 12, verse number two. So this week, we're gonna continue our study by looking at verses nine through 13, where Paul described how the renewing of our mind is demonstrated in our love toward one another. Now, starting with verse nine, it reads, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Church family, I've entitled this week's study, What's Love Got to Do With It? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word and share it with your people. God, I am not worthy at all for this calling but you saw it fit to call me to this ministry and to deliver your word, and for that I am so thankful. So in preparation, Heavenly Father, I ask that you forgive me for any sin I may have committed. I ask that you give me patience as we go over your word. I pray that you touch the hearts of everyone who is listening. Allow their heart to be good soil so that they can receive seeds of righteousness that will help them grow in their sanctification to be like Jesus. So, Heavenly Father, please fall afresh on each and every one of us. And as we receive your word, help us not only to be hearers, but to to be doers of it as well. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in 1984, Tina Turner released her most successful single titled, What's Love Got to Do With It? 
Now, unfortunately, due to tragic events in her life, she summarized the significance of love with these words. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? There was no way I was going to try to sing that song before you. (laughs) So as you can see, Tina described love as just a secondhand emotion. And the meaning of love, according to that statement, is something that is simply self-serving in nature. Now, in the song, love is a fleeting emotion that comes and goes based off of a particular circumstance. Now, in Tina's case, it was an abusive relationship. Now, though that song is catchy, its flawed explanation of love has not only saturated the minds of those outside the church, but also those who profess Jesus is Lord. So today, we're going to unpack God's word to see what he has to say about love. Now, Romans chapter 12 introduces a notable shift in Paul's letter to the Romans. Beginning with this chapter, Paul discusses both practical and ethical matters. Now, Paul's letter often follows this pattern of doctrinal teaching, followed by ethical instructions intended to help believers live out their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this pattern highlights a strong relationship between sound doctrine and righteous living, emphasizing the fact that our understanding of theology, which is who God is and what God does, shapes and supports our ethics, which is who we are in Christ and what we as believers should do. So if you remember from last week, verses 4 through 8 were about the use of our spiritual gifts. But starting in verse number 9, Paul turned from the focus on gifts to the focus on showing love in the church. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll realize that this is exactly what Paul did in 1 Corinthians, which is the letter to the church at Corinth. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is all about gifts. But at the end of the chapter, Paul says this. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gift, and I will show you a more excellent way. And as we continue to read through the uh, scripture, we realize that the more excellent way is love. Now, Paul then continues in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians with the list of core attributes of love. And although we normally reserve these scriptures for weddings and beautiful Valentine's Day cards, the reality is that Paul wrote it to the church at Corinth after hearing of unrest, arguing, and conflict by the Corinthians. See, Paul wrote a scathing letter chastising the church for not showing love to one another. Paul stated that the body of Christ, the body of believers, we as members must live love that is patient, kind, trustful, hopeful, enduring, and strong, and love that rejects envy, arrogance, rudeness, irritability, wrongdoing, 
and resentment. So what we see in Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and Romans chapter 12 is Paul being very specific that the use of gifts inside the church is important. However, they are not more important than love. So as we go back to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse number 9, Paul begins with a general two-part introductory statement calling the reader's attention to genuine love. And this is what he states. This is part one. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. See, the word love in verse 9 comes from the Greek word agape, which means unconditional love that is active and shows love through actions. It's the love that God shows us and with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we show towards others. Interestingly enough, up until this point, Paul had not used the word agape to describe how we as a body of believers should love one another. See, so far in the book of Romans, he uses it only to describe God's love towards man. But now, he takes that term and suggests that unconditional love is the love Jesus' followers should show one to another. Why? Because it's the simple, most distinguishing mark of a true believer. See, what it says in John chapter 13, verse 35, it says, by, all, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. This was Jesus talking. And he said, they'll know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is how, and, and this is what God says about love. He says this. He says that we should let love be without hypocrisy. Now, what Paul is making very clear is that we as God, as Christ followers, we are to love unconditionally without hypocrisy. See, the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word hypocritos. And what Paul is suggesting is that we are supposed to love without putting on a mask. See, during the Greek play or drama, there would be a happy face with, for some actors and a sad face for others. And while they were on stage, the actors would put on a mask and pretend to be someone that they were not. And while they were on stage with these masks on, they would project and emote and memorize lines so that while they were in front of a group of people, they would act one way, pretending to be someone they wasn't. But then once they got off the stage and the play was over, they would take off the mask and be who they really were. So what Paul is stating here is that we as a body of believers should not have to come to church, put on a mask, and pretend to be somebody who we are not. So what we see here is that the word hypocrite implies one who puts forward an outward opinion that does not truly represent who they really are. Now, interestingly enough, the term hypocrita became so profound that it took on various meanings in Scripture. See, in James chapter 3, verse 17, the word hypocrite are people who show partiality. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 56, they are people lacking spiritual discernment. Also in Matthew chapter 24, verse 51, they simply seem to be people who are wicked, 
But Jesus goes on and he repeatedly applies the term hypocrite to the scribes and Pharisees, suggesting that they are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but are actually full of filth on the inside. So what Paul is suggesting is that as a body of Christ followers, the love that God shows us is the same love that we should show one another and we better not be fake about it. Paul is telling the church to take off your mask, be who God created you to be when you are dealing with the body of believers. Now, why does Paul say this? Because any time that we pretend to be someone that we're not, what we're doing is we're telling God that the work that he's doing through the process of sanctification is not good enough. And what we need to do is to compensate for what God is doing or compensate for God's shortcoming by pretending to be somebody that God didn't create us to be. It also shows a lack of appreciation for the work that God is doing in you as a body of believers. And instead of being your biggest cheerleader and praising God for what he has done in you, basically what we're doing is being two-faced and attributing and, uh, and we're talking about, behind, talking about you behind your back. And it shows that we are not your biggest cheerleaders, but we're your biggest critics. If I accept you for who you are, then I don't need to be fake when I'm around you. See, this is the bottom line. If I cannot love you despite your shortcomings, your ethnicity, your economic status, nor your politics, then the problem isn't with you. The problem is with me. I need to gain a better understanding of God's theology and what Christ did on the cross, how Christ loved us unconditionally, so then I could get a better understanding of the way I should act and show the same love that God showed me, I should be able to show you. And if I do that, then I can walk around church being who God created me to be, and I don't have to wear a mask. God is calling us as a body of believers to be authentic, to be genuine, and to accept others where they are. And when we do that, we are not hypocrites. Well, look, that was just part one of the two-part statement <laughs> that Paul was saying in verse number 12. Here's part two. Part two says that we are to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Now, interestingly enough, see, the term good in the original language speaks of moral excellence. And the verb translated cling means to stick to or hold together and resist separation, to join, to unite, or to embrace. So when Paul told the Roman Christians to cling to what is good, his desire for them was to embrace moral goodness with all of their being, and in other words, to cling to uh, the goodness of God. See, cling is also a very powerful word in the original Greek. It conveys feelings of holding one, holding on for dear life and desperation. And the idea is that something is so good that we never want to let it go. And cling also conveys an intensity and it tells us not to simply notice or gloss over what is morally excellent, 
but to pursue it and to embrace it. So as you can see, this commandment uh, logically follows the first one. If we choose to show others the unconditional or agape love that God shows us, then we're going to hate what is evil. Now, why is that? Because evil separates. We all know from the beginning of the Bible that it was sin, that it was evil that separated a perfect God from man. So how can I say that I love God and that I love you if I tolerate the sin that destroys relationships? So the more I grow in my love for God and for others, the more I should hate evil. And since abhor is a present tense imperative, verse 9 can actually be paraphrased as consistently hating what is evil. See, evil isn't something that we as a body of believers should ever tolerate on any level. The Bible lets us know that we should be constantly hating everything that is evil, including hypocrisy. We must constantly hate it because when we love or accept evil, it destroys our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. So as we as a body of believers, as we love without hypocrisy, we have to cling to, pursue, and hold on with desperation to moral excellence so that we can be loving people. So verses 10 through 13 are supporting descriptions of how agape love is actually manifested. See, Romans chapter 12, in verse 10, it lets us know that agape love is being devoid of self-interest and gives preference to others. In verse number 11, it describes the exuberance and diligence agape love stimulates to carry through with those tasks so that we could build people up. And when we move on to verse number 13, it says that, uh, that love is the future hope which empowers agape love to endure present hardship and reminds us that prayer strengthens our faith and our hope. And then verse 13 highlights two particular needs which agape love should be eager to meet. And we see here that the first is our physical and financial needs, and the second shows kindness in welcoming guests and strangers. So what we notice here is verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 12 are five verses that is pregnant with 13 exhortations of Christian ethics that flows from agape love. And this love begins with the understanding of who God is, is received because of God's mercy toward us, and is motivated by a changed mind that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, these five verses highlight the necessity to walk in agape love in our relationship within the body of Christ. So then the question is, what does this mean for our daily walk as believers? Well, the answer is that our behavior toward one another involves making decisions that seek to honor God that is revealed in his scripture. 
The decisions we make are not to honor ourselves or not to prove our politics to be correct, but every decision that we make should be to honor God as revealed in Scripture. And the way that Christ followers are to treat one another is not based off of our feelings, nor on our individual definition of love. See, that's not sustainable. It's based solely on God's definition of agape love. See, let me explain. John Fletcher, he's an advocate of situational ethics, and he once told the story of a farmer whose daughter was sexually seduced by a traveling salesman. See, the girl's brother was so enraged and ready to shoot the salesperson did. However, the father stepped in, he rebuked his son, and he said this to him. He said, son, you are so full of what's right that you've lost sight of what's good. See, one would argue that in that particular situation, the son was justified in his actions. But the problem is, situational ethics does not define morality and immorality in terms of biblical truth and discerning theology but it describes it in terms of one's individual definition of love and what one deems to be right at that particular moment. But the bottom line is being right is not what Christian living is all about. God doesn't call us to be right, but he calls us to be righteous. And being righteous means that we are willingly following God's commandment <coughs> and he has instructed us to love him and to love others. So church family, we have to ask ourselves this question. At what point do we as a body of believers realize that there is a price associated with always wanting to be right? See, relationships are broken, families are torn apart, marriages fall, and churches split because being right becomes more important than being righteous. Now, don't get me wrong. See, righteousness still seeks truth, but it does it honorably. And that's what Paul highlights in this chapter. He's saying that the love that God calls us, <coughs> excuse me, that God calls for us is a holy love. And that's love which hates sin and loves righteousness. He also calls us to a sacrificial love. And that requires us to deny our desires and interests and sometimes even deny our rights so that we may serve others selflessly. But he goes on to call us to an eternal love, and it looks for long-term rewards rather than short-term gains, pleasures, and it endures hardship, suffering, and pain. And it does it for the benefit of others and for the service of our king and his pleasure. But it also calls us to a love which takes risk, and that risk helps us to shine forth when others are shrinking back. It allows us to go towards people who need help instead of us hunkering down in our own realities and what we feel is right. True love takes risk. And finally, God calls us to a love which responds to and reflects the love of God inside of us. 
See, the bottom line is this. Biblical love cannot be separated from biblical righteousness. And Paul is letting us know that agape love is attracted to and adheres to that which is good or that which is morally excellent. And while we do that, we're supposed to hate and withdraw from anything that is evil. See, church family, we as a body of believers, we represent Christ to those that don't know him. Have you ever heard the saying, we are the only Bible that some people have? You know what that means? That we become the theology that people need to seek in order to know Christ. And so what we display, since we are the only Bible that they have, when we display the love of Christ, they get to know true theology. But when we display evilness, when we don't cling to what is morally good, what we're demonstrating is incorrect theology. And since our understanding of theology will describe and drive how we love one another, we have an awesome opportunity to share with people God's love. So when they come to ask us, how is it that you're able to love your enemies? How, is it, how are you able to love those that despite you? I just heard the way your boss talked about you, but you didn't scream and holler at him or her. You walked away with a smile on your face. How is it that you can constantly endure hardship and what, the way we can respond? is that I love Jesus and I love that person too. If we are the only Bible that some people have, let's represent God well. Let's share true theology of love without hypocrisy and let's do an awesome job at hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. See, as in the case with the father in the farmer's story, our heavenly father is saying in these verses and to us as a body of believers, don't become so full of what you think is right that you lose sight of God's righteousness. No matter what the situation is, agape love must be the source, the substance, the standard, and the goal of our Christian ethics. And when that happens, love becomes the glue that holds this beautiful mosaic together. My wife and I had the privilege of going on vacation this year, and we took a stroll through Savannah, Georgia's historical marketplace. And while we were there, we start, stopped at this art gallery titled A.T. Hun Art Gallery. Now, while we were there, there was a display with all these mosaics on the wall, but this one particular one caught both of our attention. And what it was was a display of a young lady and an older lady, and the older lady was blowing a bubble. And as we spoke with the clerk about it, she told us that the artist designed it from thousands of pieces of broken glass. Now, I'm no artist. Never been one nor played one on TV. But I'm sure that when the glass was either sitting on a table or sitting in a bucket, it appeared worthless and even scary. However, someone with an artistic eye knew the beauty that could be made 
from that bucket or that table full of brokenness. And with precision and purpose, this artist took each sharp piece of glass and created a beautiful mosaic that's worth over $8,000. The reality is the church is full of broken people. And oftentimes we try to do a good job of hiding our brokenness, but the reality is we were all born into sin and we're still battling issues. But this is the crazy part. The master artist who designed the universe, the stars and the sky, he tells us that he can take our brokenness and create something that is beautiful from it. So if we put our faith in Christ and Christ alone, he will not only put our pieces back together for our individual selves, but he will also use our brokenness to make a beautiful mosaic called the church. And in order to participate, you don't have to hide your brokenness by pretending to be someone you're not, nor by being a hypocrite, but by acknowledging your brokenness, repenting of it, and practicing the art of showing genuine love, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in love, honoring one another above ourselves, and not lacking in zeal, keeping your spiritual fervor, and serving the Lord with joy and with hope. When we do this, God's church is presented to the world is a beautiful mosaic where we who are many, where we at ACAC are a diverse group of people, we become one in Christ. And this mosaic accepts our brokenness, but at the same time, it celebrates the beauty of being brought together with agape love as the glue that bonds us together. So the question still remains, what's love got to do with it? May I suggest that a uh, theological and ethnic and ethical understanding of God's word holds the answer to that question. And the simple answer is this, love has everything to do with it when it comes to our Christian faith. We as a body of believers, let's receive and acknowledge the ultimate show of love that God gave us. And let's love one another with that love. When we do, it's not some romantic verse that says love is just a fleeing emotion but love becomes the glue that allows us to serve one another, to be there for one another, to help one another when we're down, to lift up each other's arms when we're tired, and it gives us the strength to impact a broken world and invite them into God's mosaic of the church. Church family, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, your word lets us know that you has, have the ability to make beauty from ashes. 
And God, you have done that with your church. You have taken imperfect people. You have washed us clean by your blood. You've given us a renewed mind through your spirit. And you created this beautiful mosaic called the church with agape love as the glue that binds us together. So Lord, as we go forward, help us not to love with uh, hypocrisy, but help us to cling, help us to attach ourselves, help us to be united in our approach to loving each other. That cannot be done without the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And God, for those that have not received your love yet and have not put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, I pray that you work on their heart. I pray that you give them a renewed mind. Let them know that they don't have to clean themselves up, but you will take their brokenness, put them back together, and include them in this beautiful mosaic. So, Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing over each and every person here. And like I stated in the beginning, I'm going to state in the end. I pray that this word will get into their heart, and they will not only be hearers of the word, but doers also to create a beautiful mosaic. And I pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.